Today's scripture comes from Genesis chapter 37, verses 1 through 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, uh, <coughs> Joseph being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his, his brothers. Uh, he was a boy with the sons of Bilah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and, his, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept, say, kept the saying in, in mind. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you that especially in, uh, in these times, you bless us with the arts, you bless us with the gift of music, with the gift of fellowship, camaraderie, of warmth in this place. Lord God, these are all good gifts from our perfect Father of heavenly lights. You don't change like the shifting shadows, but Lord God, you are consistent and you continue to bless your people. And Lord, we ask that you will bless us now, open up our minds and our hearts so that we can receive your word today and that our lives will be changed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We are back in Genesis, and I'm very excited about it because I love Genesis. Um, this is what we're also doing in our small groups. So if you join a small group, we'll be going through Genesis together again. So very excited about Genesis. And in this chapter, we see the entrance of Joseph. Joseph is a key character from now to the end of the book of Genesis. And when we read this, uh, I just want you to keep these things in mind. The word brother in Hebrew, or the word brother in this chapter is used 15 times. And so we start off by seeing that these are the generations of Jacob, and here comes Joseph, 17 years old, pasturing the flock with his brothers. In verse 2, it says he was, a, he was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, which just means he was an assistant to them, his father's wives. And this is one interesting thing. As soon as we see Joseph entering the picture, the first thing that he does is that he brings a bad report about his brothers to his father. So that's the first thing that we see. Joseph was a tattletale. You know what happens to snitches? They get stitches. And we see this happening later on. Genesis already knew about snitches getting stitches, 
but we see here that Joseph was a goody-two-shoes, snitching tattletale. And here he brings a bad report about his own brothers. And now it says in verse 3 that Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons. Does this remind you of anything? Doesn't, doesn't this remind you of Isaac? Doesn't this remind you of the generations before? And remember how Jacob suffered so much under that favoritism that Isaac, his father, loved Esau so much. And yet, we see history repeat itself. And especially true in the family. I don't know about you, but a lot of people, we grow up very reactive to our family. If we have a hurt in our family, we go, I will never never be like that. I will never do the things that my parents did to me. And I am positive that Jacob said that to himself too. In fact, most of our issues do come down from our parents, and we are always reactionary. I will never, never be like that. I will never treat my children the way my parents treated me. And we're very reactionary. We make uh, these statements, not only statements, but we set aside even rules or things that we are going to do. And the ironic thing is, exactly the same thing happens once we have families and from generation to generation, from Abraham to Isaac, now to Jacob. And we see here, Jacob has this favoritism. He loves him so much that he makes him a robe of many colors. In the Hebrew here, it's called the robe of pasim. And I mentioned this a while back, but the robe of pasim literally just means a robe to the palm. So pasim just means palm. So if you think about it, is it technically a robe of many colors? The answer is no, but could it be? The answer is yes. And how we derive that is from many different translations, meaning we went to the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. We have the Masoretic text, which we see is the robe of Pasim. Um, if you don't know anything about what I just said, don't worry. It doesn't matter. What I'm going to say is you have to use your imagination. So Jacob gives his son this robe. This robe stands out because it's mentioned. Why would it be mentioned if it's just a jacket? But it's a special robe. It's a robe of the palm. And if you think about it, what kind of robe would go all the way down to the palm? There's only one other mention of the robe of Pasim in the Old Testament, and that is where Tamar, David's daughter in 2 Samuel 13, wears it. And she, I mean, that story is intriguing too because she gets raped by her brother and that's a crazy drama, but we won't get into that right now. Um, and she also wore a robe of Pasim. And this robe, if you think about it, if it goes down to the palm, what kind of robe is that? Can you do work? If it's a really elegant, decorated robe, but it goes down to the palm, can you do work? And in fact, in the old Bedouin culture, they would, the eldest son would pass down to his own son a robe. And this robe would be a signification of a transfer of future power, meaning you are now the heir. You're going to take over my kingdom. And you see this transference, this ceremony take place between Jacob 
and his favorite son, Joseph, who happens not to be the firstborn, but who happens to be the lastborn at the time. And so he gives him this robe, can't even work, so he's basically an assistant for his other brothers, and so he's not even doing work. So you can imagine this. He's not even doing the work. He has this long robe, and he's just looking at his brothers, doing all the work, you know, milking the cows, cleaning up the manure, whatever it is, right? And he's just watching, and what he does is he brings them, he brings his father a bad report. That is the story. This is how we are to see Joseph. And his father loved him more than any of his other brothers. And then it says his brothers hated him. They could not even speak peace to him or speak peaceably to him. As much as the father loves this son, shows him favoritism, you see all the brothers hate him even more. You see this kind of uh, balance, if I may, take place when you love something way too much. You see this other counterweight coming into play here. And this is how we start. Families aren't perfect. And especially this family here, we see a huge dysfunction uh, that is going, playing out in their family social life. And this is where it even just puts the cherry on top. Joseph has this dream. And he told his brothers, and they hated him even more. He said to them, here, this is what I have dreamed. And there were sheaves. These are gathered. So they, they do all this work. So they, they're gathering the sheaves of wheat and barley of, of their grains. And they gathered around Joseph's sheaf. So you can imagine. He did, I don't know even if he gathered sheaves. Probably not. But he has a sheaf. And they gathered around him. And they start bowing to him. And the brothers immediately knew what that meant. They didn't need a dream interpreter. They didn't have to go, who can interpret this dream for me? Let's pray. They just knew. They're like, do you intend to rule over us? And they hated him even more. And Joseph, being the very sharp, well-sensed man, he has another dream and decides to tell his brothers again this dream. This is, in Korean, as we would, we would call this, Joseph has a ton of nunchi because he decides to tell his brothers, guess what? I dreamed again. And this time the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. And then when his father heard, his father rebuked him. And he's like, are you telling me that I'm going to bow down to you? This is interesting because now we are on Joseph, we see all this um, take place, but the most interesting part about this section is, in this dream, God doesn't talk. This is the first time God doesn't talk in a dream. It's just a dream. But this dream we know is true because it actually happens. See, all these other dreams and visions before, God was there. There were angels descending, ascending, and God would speak, right? Um, he would visit Abraham, God would speak. And so this is the first time we see this dream and you don't see God speak. Uh, it's, it's where um, we see God use other things for his revelation. 
And some people say that the first third of Genesis, God speaks through theophany, meaning he appears. There's a manifestation and appearance physically to people, a theophany. Um, and in the second third, it's he speaks in visions and dreams. So he would go and speak through them in visions and dreams, not necessarily theophanies, although there was a few, like the wrestler. And in the third, third portion of Genesis, there's providence, meaning he doesn't necessarily speak, but there is a protection. The Jewish Bible is also set up this way. Very interesting, because Genesis might be split up. You could split up into these thirds, but the Jewish Bible also, the Tanakh, is split up into the first part is the law, which is the theophany given through Moses. And the second part is the Nabim, which is the prophets, which is God speaking to his people through dreams and visions. And the third part is Ketubim, like Ruth and Esther. They're just writings about God's providence. And so the Jewish Bible is set up these in these three ways too. I find that very intriguing because I feel like today in this age, it's very similar. We see the ultimate theophany that has happened. Um, it's not even a theophany. It's just a manifestation of the very God himself in the flesh, which is Jesus Christ. And after Jesus Christ, he gives uh, his Holy Spirit to his disciples. And you, we, we, we talked about it last week, meaning people spoke in, uh, in pro prophetic word uh, with dreams and visions. Uh, his people knew was coming. And now we are more towards this providential age, um, which Jesus aptly calls the end times. Um, there is some overlap. I don't think it's like very clear cut, like you can't draw a line. But I think that's perfect because the rainbow is like that. You know, you have the red and then you have the orange, but there isn't like a clear cut. No one can draw that line down, but it melds in and then you have the yellow. And so, we see here this new age come in. And in this new age, Joseph is the hero. Not the brothers, not the firstborn, not the secondborn, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, eleventh, all the way down to the eleventh. Jacob's upset because he thinks, what are you trying to upturn my patriarchal power? and authority, and you're saying the last will be the first? So he was upset. He takes the dream seriously. And so we see this portion, and this is how we start. Um, so now we go, to, go on to the next section. His brothers went to pasture uh, the father's flock near Shechem. If you don't remember where Shechem was, Shechem was where Dinah's rape happened. And so they go back to Shechem. And his father sent to jo what said to Joseph, why don't you check on your brothers? Uh, they're not coming back. And if we look at the distance between Hebron and Shechem, it's 50 miles. So that means they walked 50 miles to Shechem to pasture and to graze their flocks. And so Jake, uh, Joseph is like, okay, sure. And as Joseph goes, the really interesting part to me is as Joseph goes, he goes to Shechem, and, he, and he's just like, where, where are these guys? I walk 50 miles. I have no idea where my brothers are. And this 17-year-old makes this 50-mile journey on foot and is lost, doesn't know where his brothers are. And all just almost randomly 
Coincidentally, there's a man. He goes, what are you looking for? He's like, my brothers. Like, he would know. I was like, oh yeah, I know your brothers. And it's just like, what's going on? Then he goes, they've gone this way. And he goes, they went to Dathan. And so Joseph's like, okay, I'll go to Dathan. Guys, I have to tell you, if there's anything that you think is a coincidence, it's not. There is no such thing as coincidence, especially if you know that God is in control and God is sovereign over all things. There's no coincidence. And so, coincidentally, this man happens to be there and points him to Dathan. And Dathan is actually 13 miles even further northwest. And so he has to go even further to go where his brothers are. Why did, why did their brothers go so far? Um, perhaps because they were gangsters and they didn't want to get caught by their father. They wanted to do their own thing, perhaps. Uh, and they hated that Joseph was the tattletale. So they go far, but Joseph finds him. And as they see Joseph coming, they go, we got to kill this kid. We got to kill him. We have to kill our brother. And so they catch him. They put him in the cistern. Cisterns were this huge, just uh, underground holes that people dug up so they could trap rainwater and then they can drink water from there. But this one was empty, so they threw Joseph in. And Reuben, who was the firstborn, said, Let's not take his life. We'll put him in this pit here. And so they do it. And the most, I think, really disturbing thing is they throw him in this pit and they eat lunch. Like, we're going to kill this guy. But first, lunch. <laughs> Seriously, that's what actually happened. It's like, we're going to murder this guy. I hate him so much. But my meatball hero might get cold, so let me eat this first. That is actually what is happening. And in fact, I honestly believe the more you hate, the more you don't resolve that, and the more you cannot forgive, the more we become a sociopath. This sociopathic tendency goes and is pervasive through generation to generation to generation. And after a while, killing is just something that we put on the schedule. Jesus himself says, if you hated your brother, you're guilty of murder. They hated him so much, the actual murder was just a matter of time. And Reuben wanted to save his brother. And a lot of people might read this and be like, oh, Reuben's a nice guy, isn't he? He's such a nice guy. But if you read the chapters before you see kind of perhaps why he said that. He slept with his father's concubine or wife, um, and he defiled his father's bed. Why would you do that, you sick, sick, sick man, right? And then, so why would you do that? And he wanted power. He wanted to ensure that he would retain this authority over the kingdom. And so perhaps he thought, if I, don't, if I do this, I will be getting good with the dad. I don't know. But what we do know for sure is in the end, Reuben doesn't even have uh, a lot for him. His, uh, 
his portion is taken away and given to his other brothers. So that's why in the Israelite party, there are, there are no Reubenites, right? And so his portion is taken away. And we see here that Reuben really wants to be the leader. I want to be the leader. So, you know, guys, we got to do this. And this kind of social play is happening even among us. This is reality. Some of us, we really want to be the leader. So like, hey, guys, let's do this. And people are like, all right, fine. We'll throw them in the pit. Uh, lunch, right? And then, so this is, this is what's happening. But why, I don't know where Reuben went after, but he went somewhere else. So you throw him in the pit, it's like, I just got to make sure he doesn't get killed. And he does something else. It's like, all right, let me go somewhere else. So he's out of the picture. And while he's out of the picture, Judah comes up. And he says something. He's like, why are we going to kill him and not profit? If we just kill him, no profit, no money. Why don't we sell him as a slave? That way I can get a lot more meatball parm sandwiches. And we could share it among each other. And his brother's like, that's a great idea. I'm going to listen to you. So all his brothers listen to Judah. You see, all this family dynamic taking place, and they actually sell their own brother to slavery. What started off as what we think is innocent, playful almost. Oh, this is brother tattletale. But the hatred growing we see that there is evil that was planted. And once evil is planted and it sprouts and it grows, it's almost unstoppable. The chain of events is like, how did this happen? How did this happen? I think that way about our church too, or the church. Even 10 years ago, people would say, please, in the church, let's not talk about politics. So we didn't talk about politics at all in the church. Church politics should be separated. Uh, in the family, let's not talk about church. Let's not talk about politics. Family is family. And some people still think that way. When it's family time, it's just family time. When it's church, it's just church. And when we're outside in the political world, let's just talk about political. And we try to separate these things. And when we started separating these things, what we didn't do is we didn't teach that everything is intertwined, it's melded together, it laps over each other like the red, orange, yellow. You can't have this clear-cut line, it just doesn't make any sense. And so when we stop talking about it in our family, in our churches, in our politics, in our outside life, all of a sudden we're surprised that things happen in the world that we didn't expect. All of a sudden we're surprised that we have all these elected officials that don't reflect our moral values? How can we be surprised when we are not teaching it and addressing it in our every part, every part of our life? If God is God, then he is God over every single area of our life. Not just here Sunday, but after Sunday. Not just in your dinner table before you eat, but while you eat, after you eat. When you sleep, when you're intimate with your wife or husband, God is still sovereign. Every single part. In your workplace, God is still God. And we see this breakdown happening, not just in Joseph, but in the very world today. When we see a family breakdown, it goes to the church breakdown, it goes to the political breakdown, 
All these breaking downs take place, and now what we are doing is we're clamoring to try and fix it from the outside. We're saying, we got to get something to fix this political culture. We got to get something to fix the polity here in this area. But that's not true. It all starts from the family. And when the family starts breaking down, it pervades to every single area of our life. So Joseph's story is your story. Your family is important. What happens behind closed doors of your apartment, your house, your condo, wherever you're living, it's important because it affects everything else. And you see here, what they are doing now will affect everything. It's not just within the family. It affects everything. The question that a lot of people may ask, in fact, question that I start asking too when I read this is, this is so evil. I wouldn't even think about doing it to one of my brothers or sisters here. How can you kill your own flesh and blood? How much hate started to grow in your life that you ended up thinking the only way this can be resolved is through murder, is through taking a life. And why did God let that happen? And that's the question that a lot of people have. Why did God let all this happen? Why didn't he stop it? Why didn't he come in and say, stop? This is evil. This is wrong. Why didn't he just show up and blind them, be like, psych, now you can't touch him. He's my boy. I actually gave him the dream. Why did he not do that? Why did he allow, if I may, evil? And so when people think about this, people will, can't make sense. So what, what, sometimes what we can do is we say, you know what? Maybe God doesn't exist. He's absent here. Where's the mention? Where's any mention of God in this, in this chapter? No God. Which, first of all, doesn't make any sense. This is the Bible. You know it's a book about God. So, I mean, why would, if, if, if someone was writing about God, why would they purposely be like, you know what? This is weird that God's not in here. Why wouldn't they just think, let's just add him in? Unless it was actually true and it happened. And God didn't say anything there. So some people might think, there's too much evil. God doesn't exist. God's not here. And we have all these other theories at play. And in fact, uh, one famous uh, thinking from nat uh, natural selection is this famous kind of phrase, which is survival of the fittest. You know, we want to say this is so bad, this is so good. But what makes us say this is bad and good? What determines what's good and what's bad? If not God, then who determines it? A survival of the fittest, we as a people, when you look at a lion chasing down an antelope and finally catching the antelope, some of us may cheer. I don't know. I, I would cheer. I'd be like, whoa, that was crazy, right? And the lion devours the antelope. No one here says the lion is evil. I don't think people would say the lion should be punished and put in jail for doing that. We don't cry out, an eye for an eye, lion, and put it to death. You kill the antelope, I kill you. Instead, what do we do? We marvel 
and nature's wonder. All these theories, the reason why they fall short is because it doesn't give us the answer how we deal with evil. In fact, we get stuck at even what is good and evil. And it, the concept of survival of the fittest doesn't even make sense. It lasted maybe a few years, but even now we can't view that concept, survival of the fittest, at face value. Interestingly enough, a Russian anarchist, this is a Russian anarchist, a nihilist, somebody that doesn't believe in God, that believes in anarchy, Peter Kropotkin, says that, you know what, survival of the fittest really just means cooperation, not competition. So now we have a redefining of terms. Now competition just means cooperation. And this is, this is the only way to make sense. So, you know, the factor of evolution, he set out his analysis, leading to the conclusion that the fittest was not necessarily the best at competing individually, but often the community made up of those best at working together. So now we even have to redefine what survival of the fittest means. Guess what survival of the fittest means? It really means just doing what God tells you. What's <laughs> like, basically, that's what it's coming down to. But when there is war, when there is bloodshed, when there's violence, strife, when there's chaos in our governments, we don't say that's okay. None of us here sleep well at night knowing that there's chaos out there when people are dying, when babies are literally dying by, by, by the hour? What do we say? We say that is evil. And if God existed, the question would be, wouldn't a good God obliterate evil and bring forth justice, God? Won't you do that? But the question can never escape you. If God didn't exist, then who's to say that suffering and pain is a bad thing? It's just a thing. How would you even define justice? Like the anarchist, would you only define it within the communities that you belong to? And eventually when communities collide, then you will say it's survival of the fittest and we're back to bloodshed, war, and violent strife? How would you even define justice? Justice and morality would just be constructs of our own societal norms and no one else can say anything to that? This actually happens. There's a great man by the name of Thomas Jefferson. I don't know if you know him. But Thomas Jefferson, he was a big promoter of justice. He would say and write things like, justice is the fundamental law of society. The most sacred of duties of a government is to do equal and impartial justice to all its citizens. And yet he kept slaves. And when he kept slaves, he needed to rationalize that. And he would say, these slaves are subhuman. They don't feel grief like we do, so it's okay to kill them. They don't need sleep at night, so it's okay to work them. And they would die, and he needed to be able to sleep at night, so he would say that. But towards the end of his life, this is what Thomas Jefferson said, speaking out against slavery. He said, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever. Dostoevsky said, denying God 
They will end by flooding the earth with blood, for blood cries out for blood. If you deny God, if we deny God and say he doesn't exist, what happens and what plays out is exactly what we see here, but exactly what we see here. If someone goes and kills your family, saying, you know, there's famous movies out there, uh, 12 hours, you can kill anybody you want. So there's like these plot and premises out there that movies have. I think it's called The Purge. I haven't watched it, but for 12 hours, you kill someone. I was thinking about that. Murder is okay. What happens if someone murdered your family and you lived? You're going to be like, oh, 12 hours is over. So I guess I'll just wait till next year. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't think like that. If God isn't going to give me justice, I'm going to get it myself. I'm going to kill those that hurt my family. If you deny God, Dostoevsky does say, the world will end with this flood of blood. When we realize that sin is real, but not only that sin is real, but sin is in us. And not only is it in us, but sin controls us. So when we start realizing we're caught in an endless loop, hopeless and drifting away into eventual nothingness. Because sin isn't only in us, it has taken, it's not only in us, but it's taken these deep roots and it starts growing and it affects everything we do and things that we do become more and more extreme. Sure, you know, let's do this one time. It's not that big of a deal. But the next time, that won't satisfy because sin's roots grew a little deeper. It needs to suck more energy and life. And it gets worse and worse. Jesus himself when he was being captured, knowing that he would go to the cross, his disciples said, I will defend you. I will be the avenger. Takes out a sword, cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. And this is what Jesus says. He goes, put your sword back in its place. For, though, for all those who take the sword shall die by the sword. We continue to fight and quarrel among us. There is sides that people take, but every side gets even more and more extreme as the day goes on because we desire and we do not have, and so we murder. We covet, covet and we cannot obtain, so we fight and we quarrel. And James ends that by saying, you do not have because you do not ask. You don't have because you don't ask. Asking requires something, doesn't it? Asking requires something. As we read the Bible, we see that there's one primary thing that God desires of us, and that is a relationship with him. Once we realize that the key purpose of your life, the ultimate meaning of humanity is to glorify God, to have a relationship with him. The suffering and pain takes on a new dimension. And what is it to glorify God other than to have this deep and loving relationship with the Father no longer separated by sin 
as the psalmist says, to know that we are his, his people, the sheep of his pasture. And there is a deep longing in every single human soul to be with the Father. We try to fill it with other things, but it never gets filled. Um, interestingly enough, I am doing a marriage counseling with another couple, and one of the things that is in our curriculum, in our study is, one of the questions you ask is, by marrying, do you believe that problems will be solved? By marrying, do you believe that problems will be solved? And of course, I have the answer sheet because I'm doing this, right? I have the answer sheet. And there are these questions in this questionnaire. And if someone checks yes, and almost every couple checks yes, someone checks yes, that is a signal to the counselor that this is a flag. Because by marrying, if you go into marriage thinking it's going to say, uh, solve all these problems, what you don't realize is, yes, it alleviates some, but it'll bring on a whole new dimension of other problems. Marrying doesn't get rid of your problems. In fact, I would say if it solves some, it will bring equally more problems. Why is that? Why is that no matter what we do, problems keep on coming? Isn't it because sin has taken deep roots not only in us, but in society? In the Bible it says that God pours his wrath into this cup and he's going to give it to the people. Justice, just like Thomas Jefferson knew, cannot sleep forever and it will come. This cup was meant for us. Jesus in the Mount Gethsemane says, Father, won't you take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. And he prayed so hard that his, his sweat were like droplets of blood because this cup isn't any ordinary cup. All the wrath, all the things that sin deserves is in this cup. And it's before Jesus. And Jesus goes, if I can't let it pass, but not my will, but yours be done. And then he prays again, and he goes, no. If this is your will, I will take your cup, and your will be done. And we all know what Jesus did. He takes the cup, and the wrath of God was poured out on him. Because what we deserved, he took. And on that cross, we see a miracle take place. When justice was supposed to be served in our families, in our lives, what happens is that Jesus takes the cup of wrath for us and he drinks it of his own accord. That's why we don't have to drink it. That's why when something happens to us, we can say, Jesus took the wrath for me. That's why when I say suffering, and pain take on a new dimension for Christians. It is a brand new, grand dimension. What happens now is that death cannot stop you from doing your ultimate purpose in life, from you achieving the ultimate joy that you were meant for, for you living out the life you were meant to live. Nothing can stop you because God has given you 
this amazing miracle through his son. It doesn't mean that all problems are solved, mind you. It doesn't mean after you hear this sermon, you go back to your family and like, oh, guess what? We all love each other now. It doesn't mean that. But what does it mean? It means that what was once hopeless now has not just any hope, but a sure hope. There is a guarantee hope that he gives us by his Holy Spirit. But what that also means is you, we, us, we have to look to God. We have to look to Christ and not ourselves any longer because the answer is not in us. The answer is not in society. It's not in our politics. It's not in our workplace. It's not in the money that we earn. It's not in the things that we get. The answer is in Jesus Christ. He is the answer. And so when we have these issues now, we can lift it up to someone who gives us a sure hope. My challenge to you, this congregation today, is this. What is it that you need to lift up? What is it that makes you so upset? What is trying to take deep roots in your life that is not good? Lift it up to the Lord. Lift it up to the Lord. He is the only one that can take the cup. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this word that you've given us. What we see here isn't just the weaknesses of Joseph and his brothers. What appalls us isn't just what we see other people doing. But by your Holy Spirit, what appalls us is the sin in our own very lives. Help us to turn back to you. Lord, call us as your people, as your sheep. 